Workforce Health Engagement, Episode 31. Building a high-performance and health-driven culture at Trek Bikes. Featuring John Burke, CEO. Welcome to Workforce Health Engagement, a show exploring strategies to improve your employees' health and productivity and to protect your bottom line. Join us as industry experts discuss how to engage employees in population health management, wellness, and healthcare consumerism. This is a special series by the producers of the top-rated podcast, Engaging Leader. And now, with 20 years of experience as a communication consultant to Fortune 500 companies, helping engage hundreds of thousands of employees, here's your host, Jesse Leahy. Welcome to the show, Engagers. The organizations that are most successful in building a culture of health begin at the top with key leaders championing a vision that includes the well-being of every employee. In this episode, I'm so excited to be interviewing CEO John Burke, who took a stand 13 years ago that launched a culture at Trek Bikes that has produced improvements in employee health every year since then. Trek Bikes grew out of one man's belief that he could build a different kind of company. In a barn in southern Wisconsin, Dick Burke instilled the simple principles that continue to guide the company as it has grown into a worldwide brand of over a billion dollars a year. Build things that last and leave a legacy of positive change. Dick's son, John Burke, began working at Trek in 1984 and has been president of the company since 1997. Today we're going to dig into the story of Trek and John's personal story of joining the company and eventually leading it, how they developed their overall culture, And then what happened 13 years ago that prompted John to take this stand and to create a culture of health? Uh, What's happened in the last 13 years and what are the results that they've seen? Trek Bikes is a company I have admired ever since I first got into triathlons in 2009 and I am so excited to have this chance to talk to John Burke today. John Burke, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. First of all, I need to confess a couple things right up front. Um, First of all, while I'd love to brag about being a fellow triathlete and cyclist, the truth is that uh, John is on a higher level than me, and he's finished two Ironmans as well as the Boston and New York marathons. John, do you have any events planned for this season? You know, I do. We uh, do a race. My wife and I do a race in France, a bike race. They, it's called the Etape de Tour. So it's on the hardest, usually the hardest stage of the Tour de France. So it's usually 110 miles and there's a number of mountain climbs and it's a long day on the bike. And we've done that ride. Um, this will be the 12th year in a row. So we'll do that one. And then one of our favorites is there's something called the Ride Across Wisconsin, and that's 178 miles in one day, so we'll do that one too. Those are two big ones for the year. Wow, that's amazing. It sounds grueling, but what a cool thing to do with your wife. Yeah, she's uh, great fun. She's an awesome rider, and she's a great mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the second confession is, although I am a longtime fan of Trek, the bike I use for triathlons is not a Trek, uh, simply because the bike shop that I prefer focuses on a different brand. But, John, what would a good Trek representative say to persuade me to switch over to Trek? Oh, that's a really good question. So, one of the things, we were looking at the owner's manual maybe six or seven years ago, 
And it's this long legal document. And I said, I don't like the legal document. I want to write a nice owner's manual that people understand. And so we kind of had a compromise. And I said, I'm going to write the introduction. And I did. And it says something like this. It says, thanks for buying a Trek. Welcome to the Trek family. If you ever have a problem with your Trek, see your Trek retailer and they'll take care of you. And if they don't take care of you, call Trek and we'll take care of you. And if Trek's not taking care of you, here's my email address (laughs) and I'll make sure you're taken care of. And so I can always tell you when the start of the bike season is because I'll start to get emails. (laughs) But... And I, and I met a guy, I was at the Tour of California yesterday, who came up to me and he goes, I just want to thank you so much for taking care of my bicycle issue. And I remembered what the issue was. It was like three years ago, and it was a simple issue, but he wasn't getting the help he needed, and we took care of it. But I don't know any other consumer product company, whether it's a car company, a computer company, or a bike company, where that company is so dedicated to you having a great experience that you can call the company. And if that doesn't work out, you can just send a note to the guy who owns the company and he'll take care of you. And the thing at Trek is we make the best bikes in the world, but I think what really sets us apart from every other company is we'll make sure that you are a very happy Trek customer. That is powerful. That's amazing. An amazing story. I think that's a great answer. <laughs> well, tell us the story about how Trek got started. You know, my dad was, uh, he was an overweight guy who smoked a pipe in the early seventies. And then all of a sudden Frank Shorter won the Olympic marathon in 1972. And that kind of changed him and he got into running and he was one of the first guys in our area who got into running and everybody thought he was crazy. And uh, he ended up meeting this guy in the early seventies who was in the bike business. And this guy, his name was Bevel Hogg, convinced my dad there was a future for a high end made in America bike company. And uh, my dad was in the distribution business and he was always looking for new ideas. And so he started Trek and the company grew and grew um, until about 1984, and uh, that's when I joined the company. I'd graduated from school, and uh, that's when I got involved. So what's the story of once you got involved, how did you eventually come to lead the company? Yeah, I think the biggest thing was when I got involved in 1984, Trek was doing really well, and my dad was spending the majority of his time on his other businesses, and almost from the day I started the company went into a massive tailspin. And so I was a sales rep and I called on customers in the Rocky Mountain area and I would drive from bike shop to bike shop and hear about how horrible my family's company was. Mm. And in retrospect, that was the greatest education anyone could ever have. And that, you know, really um, gave me some background and just some foundation that what I really cared about was taking care of the customer. And I said, if I was ever going to be put in a position of responsibility, you know, the first thing I'd do is I'd make sure we were taking care of the customer. And so Trek got into a bunch of problems in 85 and 86. And, um, my father gave me a call and he put me in charge of sales. I was 24 years old and 
I think he kind of looked at the bench and I was the only guy sitting there and he put me in the game. <laughs> and, you know, from there, you know, I just, you know, I worked with an amazing group of people. We were a young team. They called us the Cub Scouts and, you know, we built that business from there. So what, uh, what's, was the, the growth like? Um, what, what kind of numbers in terms of uh, number of employees did you have there in 84 or so? And what did the, what did the uh, growth curve look like afterwards? Well, you know, I th- when I started, the business was like $20 million and then it went backwards. I think it probably hit a low of like $16 million a year, two years later. And then, you know, the great thing about Trek, it was a great brand. People loved the idea about the company, you know, making bikes in the U.S. and higher-end bikes. And it just needed the execution and the blocking and tackling. And, you know, my father made a bunch of management changes. He came out and ran the company. And it took off from there. And, you know, we had a really young team of people selling and man, we, we made things happen. And all of a sudden we started, you know, growing the business by 30, 40, 50% a year for maybe five, six, seven years in a row. And all of a sudden you had a, you went from $20 million to 200 million pretty quick. And then, you know, that business grew from there. And today it does, you know, does around a billion dollars in business around the world. And that's, that's kind of how it started. Fantastic. Now, you've written two books so far. Uh, the first is One Last Great Thing, which goes deeper into your father's story and the building of Trek. What is it about that story that deserves an entire book? Well, the entire book is 124 pages, so it's, uh, it's a short read. You can read it in a, in a weekend or you can read it in a night. But I also, my father uh, was 73 years old when he died. And he was fit as a fiddle. And he had a valve problem. And uh, he decided to get a new valve put in. And as he said to me, you know, they tell me there's only one problem out of 100. And he was the one. Mm. And, uh, you know, he was in the hospital for 88 days before he died. And he, at his 70th birthday party, he gave this amazing speech. And he stood up and he pulled out some yellow legal pages in front of his family. And he gave this, you know, 30-minute speech at his own birthday party. And it was phenomenal. And I remember how good it was because I left for Europe the next day. And on the flight, I wrote down everything that I could remember from his speech. (laughs) And in that speech, he said, I've been lucky enough to do a lot of great things in my life but I know I have one last one left in me. He goes, I'm not sure what it is, but I've got one more thing. And then through his journey in the, in the hospital, his last 88 days, I came to understand that the last great thing he did was the way he died and the character, the dignity, um, the love that surrounded this man in those final 88 days was off the charts. And so after he died, I started writing a book just for my two kids because I wanted them to always understand their grandfather's life. And when I finished it, there were a couple of people who saw it and they go, wow, this is really, really good. And so that's when I decided to turn it into a book. 
What was the impact on on track and the the culture uh, following your your dad's passing? That's a really good question. You know, I think um, I think the honest answer is zero. Is there wasn't an impact, and that's a real tribute to the way he managed the company and his leadership skills. Is that he built the company to last, and it wasn't like a panic like the big guy's gone it was you know i had been running the company for 10 years and you know he and i would communicate frequently but you know he let me do my thing and uh he also he wasn't a micromanager there's a couple of things that were important to him and he was he was pretty clear about it that's that's pretty amazing for a a family-led company to have that kind of leadership where it's not so personality driven uh, values driven I, I can tell from from the way you guys lead the, lead the company but what so what are the, what's an example of one or two things that was really important to your dad yeah I think one of the th- one of the things that was really important to him was taking care of the customer is just listening to the customer um, you know back in 1986 that's the way he turned the company around is he was really good about um, listening to the customer and he was really, really good at being humble. Is He was a professional at asking questions. Um, And, you know, what don't you like about Trek? How can the product be improved? I mean, that's what he wanted to talk about. He didn't want to talk about how great things were. That never really appealed to him. John, your newest book is 12 Simple Solutions to Save America. Tell us about the day when you came to the decision to write this book. Okay, so I'm at, uh, my son was graduating from Marquette, which is the same school my father graduated from. And uh, it was quite a big moment because Richie was going to graduate. Super good kid, but not the best student. Neither was his father or his grandfather. So (laughs) I was looking forward to this day for a number of reasons. And one of my favorite authors is David McCullough, the great American historian. And I've read a bunch of his books and I, he was the key, the commencement speaker. And I'm like, wow, this is great. Yeah. I love, I love David McCullough's books too. That would be fantastic to get to hear him speak. Right. So I've been to some loser graduations where, you know, (laughs) including my own, where I can't even tell you who the, who the commencement speaker was. So all of a sudden McCulley gives us fabulous commencement address on the value of reading and readers are leaders and you are what you read. And I mean, I was soaking it all in and he gets to the end and McCulley must've been at that time, you know, in in his, his uh, early eighties and he gets to the end and he peers out over the audience and he says this, he says, for, for his closer, he looks out and he says this, and at some point, do something for your country. And so that stuck in my mind. And that night, as we drove home to Madison, I thought to myself, what could I do for my country? The country's been so good for me, and I've always been interested in American history, and I thought, what I could do for my country is I could write a book because I just finished that book about my father and I, I'd enjoyed doing that. I could write a book about what I consider to be the biggest problems in America and really simple solutions on 
how those problems could be solved. So if you write a book like that, you're obviously going to cross some of those lines where you're talking politics and uh, that, yeah. that can get really divisive. I guess the first thing I'm curious about is how did people in Trek Bicycle react to that? Um, did that cause any any waves in the company? You know, that's a really good question, and it did, because, you know, the nation's so divided. And, you know, one of the good things is I'm not a Republican or I'm not a Democrat. I'm just an independent, and I'm just somebody who cares about the country. And, you know, much of the book, you can't figure out you know, some of the some of the solutions people would say are liberal solutions and some of the solutions people would say are conservative solutions. So when when people stepped back after reading the book, you know, we said, Well, is this gonna hurt Trek? You know the the consensus was was no that it wouldn't. And the other thing, and this is just one of the things that I you know, learned from my dad is we just do the right thing. If you have something to say, say it. So put the book out there. And it it is written in a very um, sensitive, thoughtful, um, non-divisive way. The tone is respectful and you're inviting people to disagree with you. Uh, so th- I think that, that certainly helps. And I probably, almost anybody when you read through the book, they're going to, they're going to agree with some of what you like, some of your ideas, others, I think are, they're going to find challenging. So I'll, th- I'll tell you one, one thing that I think I did well was for each one of the 12 solutions, I start the chapter out and I say, here are all the facts. And these are facts which can't be challenged from good sources backed up by um, good research and said, here are all the facts. And a friend of mine read the book, super smart guy. He reads the book and he comes back and he says, I want to let you know that I agree with every point in the book. And he says, the point is, is that you did such a good job of laying out all the facts. And if you put a bunch of smart people in a room and you give them all the facts, 90% of the time they'll come to the same conclusion. And I think what we lack in this country is we lack the facts, is that people are in this big struggle between Republicans and Democrats and beating the hell out of each other, and nobody's focusing on the country, and nobody's focusing on, here are the facts, how can we solve the problem? It's also interesting that you didn't just write a book, you were thoughtful about how to present those facts. There's lots of great visuals that you obviously took the time to think what what's the right way to show this data in a way that's going that people can visually digest i what was that a thoughtful uh, decision you made you know i love to read and i think one of the mistakes authors make is they write 500 page books that could have been <laughs> written in 220 pages and i think that turns people off and i think that limits the audience and one of the things i wanted to do is because america is a complicated country and many of our problems are complex. What I wanted to do was simplify it so that anybody could pick up the book and read it. And one of the great, I've gotten, <clears throat> I've gotten so many um, great reviews. And one of the best ones I got is from somebody in my neighborhood who came up and said, you know, I love that book. My daughter and I read the book together. <laughs> and I wanted to write it 
with bullet points and simplicity and simple graphs and pictures so that people could take something, you know, something like the defense budget and they could understand it. Yeah. The other thing I like is in in 12 Simple Solutions, the book, you follow a a problems and solutions approach. Uh, Can you explain that approach you take and whether that's an approach you teach in business for your team at Trek as well? Yeah, I always like to, there's a couple of things I always like to do is one is I always like to define what the problem is. Like too often when you're trying to solve something, before you solve it, you should really figure out, okay, let's really define what, what problem we're trying to solve here. So whatever it is that we're dealing with that track, I always like to put up here are all the facts and Here's the problem we're trying to solve, and this is where we're trying to get to. Just so everybody, before we start kicking ideas around, just so everybody knows where we're at. And so I kind of did the same thing here in the book as I said, okay, here's a problem, and here's why it's a problem. And then I list out what the solutions are. That I, I'm trying to remember what the quote is. Um, uh, some smart person said something like, if, if you asked me, uh, uh, if you asked me a, a question and gave me only an hour to answer, come up with a, with a solution, I'm going to spend 90% of that time trying to clarify the exact question. So, the, But anyway, I'm not even giving, doing justice to the quote. <laughs> but the yeah. idea of, of, of true, defining the problem very intentionally, that is, that is powerful just to bring clarity about what we're trying to solve in the first place. Right. And as a country, we have... You know, it's such an amazing country in so many different respects. But as a country, we have some serious problems. And, you know, the problem we have is, you know, the conversation really gets into meaningless discussions about nothing instead of focusing on here's some real issues. What's the issue? What's the problem? And what are our options to solve it? Yeah, it, it quite, usually degenerates into sound bites and ad hominem attacks. Yeah, yeah, and and a lot of times, I think in the business world, if we don't take the time to truly define the problem and then provide the facts and with a critical eye look at look at the facts, uh, people end up chasing their tails um, or or just being paralyzed with in the ambiguity. Yeah, I think. You know, one of the things also is I always like try to focus on 30,000 feet first is to solve a problem. Let's, let's take care of the big things first. What are the big things that we agree on before you jump into the weeds? And sometimes, especially in business, people love to jump right into the weeds. And I, I'm always like, whoa, <laughs> first let's solve it up here and then, then we can jump into the weeds, but not, not now. In the book, you focus a lot on ideas for creating a high-performance government, which I think a lot of people would say that's an oxymoron. But some of those ideas obviously came from your experience with creating a high-performing team at Trek. What, what are some of the ideas that would work for business leaders? For creating a high-performance business? Yes. Oh, I, think, I think the biggest one is just making sure you got the best team on the field. And... You know, that one to me, just time and time and time again, it just, it really comes down to, do you have the best team on the field? And if you have the best team on the field, you'll do very well. 
I've never seen a business flounder that, that has a great team. I've never seen it. Hmm. And I've seen a lot of businesses flounder, but those are people, those are teams that either don't have a very good team on the field or they've got a lousy leader. So the, how, what, how, where do you start with that? Where do you get your good people? You know, one of the things I think that's really important is the culture of the company is because people choose where they want to work and they have options. And, you know, just like when you're producing a product, you're producing a product to be competitive in the marketplace. People have options. And the same thing is when people want to choose where to go to work, they have an option on where do they want to work. And I think one of the great things we've been able to do at Trek is we have a saying, right people in the right seats of an awesome bus. And we focus on creating an awesome bus. And the bus is Trek. And so what can we do to make Trek this incredible place for people to work? And that's profit sharing. That's an ESOP. That's incredible mountain bike trails. That's an amazing cafe. It's great workspaces. The list goes on and on. And we really focus on that. And when you do that, you'll get great people. How much of the that culture building comes from, I guess, you personally or in, in terms of face-to-face um, talking to employees or managers? You know, I, I, I do my part and I set the pace. Um, but it's up to every leader in the business to, you know, create a great environment for their employees. And, you know, we do this, we do something called great places to work study every year. So I can tell you what tracks results are, and you can break those down by leader, by manager, and they vary widely. And that is because the leaders vary and, you know, that's something that we really focus in on because we really believe the happier the employees, the better the business is going to do. So I can, I can set the pace, but it's really important at the grassroots level how well our leaders are doing. And what, uh, any tips for how to develop those leaders? You know, I think one of the things is just somebody once said that the University of Michigan did a great study on why people fail in their jobs. And they spent a lot of time and a lot of money and they came to a simple conclusion that people failed in their jobs because A, they didn't know what the job was and B, they were never trained to do it. And I think that's true of any position. I think just making sure people know exactly this is what the job is and this is what you need to do to succeed at the job. And I think when it comes to the values of the company, it's saying, hey, letting everybody know these are the values of the company and this is what is the expectation of anybody who works here. And I'll just give you one example. At Trek, one of them is, is having a high energy level. And I've always believed that they're either, whenever anybody walks into a meeting or they walk into a situation, they're either adding energy or they're sucking energy out. Hmm. And we want people who add energy. You mentioned the great place to great place to work study, which for any listeners that don't know, that's there's a, a company called the Great Place to Work Institute that does that study every year. And I'm curious, John, do do you um, so you participate in that yearly and you get the data, uh, and then 
are you basically on your own to um, figure out what to do with that, or do you take make use of the institute's consulting or coaching services as well? You know, I think we're on our own, and I think that's good because we're the ones who need to run the business. But mm-hmm. you know, if you if you get the data and the data says, and we've had this situation where the data says, just in this area of the business, you're 30 points below average. Mm-hmm. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and then, you know, it's just awesome because then all of a sudden you can just laser into that and you can figure out what you can figure out what the problem is and you can come up with the solution. And we've, We've made more changes based on that survey, which have really helped our business. Do you have an example to share? Well, I'll just say that one area of the business performed very poorly on the Great Places to Work study, and we took a look at it, and we we replaced the leadership and a couple other positions, and we put a rock star in that position who has an incredible amount of energy, and all of a sudden, the results have gone through the roof. Yeah, that's great. So and that that gets back to that whole thing is it's all about people. But you know the thing about people is that it's really easy to say it's all about people, <laughs> but the hardest part is dealing with the problems when you have them because every business has people issues. Yeah. Do have you had any concerns with let's say people skewing the results um, uh, when, the, when you do the, the study that a manager might try to get employees to rate him or her well to avoid that kind of situation? That person would have a very short lifespan at Trek. <laughs> so it would just be pretty obvious in your culture that that kind of behavior would, would not stay hidden. No. Yeah. No, that, that would be a quick exit. <laughs> Uh, tell, can you tell us about the day when you decided to create a culture of health within Trek? You know, I was on the President's Council for Physical Fitness and Sports. And so I had spent a bunch of time at Health and Human Services, and I'd really become aware of what poor health our country has and how it's getting worse with time. And all of a sudden, it was in a span of two months, we had three incidents. We had a truck driver driving across Iowa who had a massive heart attack, and he would never return to work again. Mm. And he loved his job. We had a woman in our international department who had taken advantage of our health program at Trek and had lost 20 pounds over the last couple of years and was in really good health. But her husband hadn't, and he didn't work at Trek, and he had a stroke. And he was only 48, and it turned her world upside down to this day. Mm. And then we had a warehouse manager who is this really big guy. And he was really tall and really wide. And I used to play against him in the annual football game, and he's a big guy. (laughs) And just a gentle giant. And big smile, and one day I walk into work, and... And somebody says, Craig Umland died in his sleep last night. And the guy was like 46 and he had two young daughters. And I saw the birth certificate or the death certificate and it said obesity. And I had my HR guy come into the office and I go, Mark, this needs to end. 
I go, we need to come up with a, with a, you know, we had a health program and it was a really nice health program, like treats for people for doing good things. And I said, we need to have a much stronger health program than we have today. And there needs to be consequences for people who don't care about their health. Because if people don't care about their health, I don't want to pay for it. And everyone's like, ooh, you can't do that. <laughs> like, okay, well, let's get the lawyers in here. We figured out what we could do and what we couldn't do. And then I had a, I said, I want everybody in the company in the um, atrium, this big space that we have. And there's like 900 people there. And I got up there and I showed three slides. That's it. Three slides. And there are three pictures of these three different people. And I said, here's the deal. We're going to change the health program. And we're changing it not because we're trying to save money. We're changing it because I care about your health. And if you don't care about your health, I'm not going to pay for it. I'm not going to pay as much for it. And we're going to do everything to help you be healthy. We're going to serve healthier food in the cafe. We're going to put a Twinkie tax and get rid of a bunch of the stuff that's not healthy. We're going to open up a great health facility here. We are going to have... Um, Everybody take a health risk assessment every year and get scored on it. Um, and we're also going to provide you, if you need the help, we're going to provide you with a health coach. And we're also going to give you a time. We're going to give you a year to get into, get into spec. And, you know, when you're speaking, you can always tell when you have people's attention. And that day, I had everybody's attention, and you could have heard a pin drop. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every year we have a 20-year club dinner for all the people who have served at Trek for over 20 years. And the one comment I get the most is, thank you for the health program. It changed. It not only changed my life, it changed my kids' lives. Wow. And, you know, the one thing I always, I always chuckle at healthy human services, there are all these people spending all this time, energy, and money to figure out childhood obesity. <laughs> and I was like, I'll figure that one out for you in about 10 seconds. <laughs> It's unhealthy adults. And, and the Trek program has kind of proven that out is when, is when adults get healthy, their kids get healthy at the same time. Very true. And so that's, of, of all the things we've accomplished at Trek, and we've done some great stuff, that's one of the things I'm most proud of. How many years ago was that day? Oh, let's say that day was probably 2004-ish. So I'm saying 13, 13 years ago. Yeah. And so you fast forward now 13 years, um, yep. what's the, I guess, um, I, I, I've seen some companies where they do health risk assessments and uh, people are excited for the first couple of years and then they sort of hit a plateau in, in health levels and, and a lot of people sort of get stuck at not particularly healthy levels. And so I'm just curious, what's the, what do things look like at Trek now 13 years later? You know, I think our health, we monitor the health because we get everybody's health score. We don't know who they are, but we can, you know, take a look at the data without the names. And I think our health has improved every single year over the last 13 years. And it has definitely not plateaued. It, it has improved every year and we've got a ways to go. But, you know, we've made a, di- a big difference in a lot of people's lives. What do you think is the secret to continuing to make those year-over-year improvements? I mean, it's one thing that, to change the health plan 
and and require HRAs uh, 13 years ago. But what what caused the, the change over this past year? Yeah, I think you got to have somebody who's responsible for it, and we have somebody at Trek who's responsible for it, and they have a business plan, just like the person who's in charge of road bikes or the person who's in charge of Europe. They're in charge of the company's health, and they've got specific goals and action items, and they've got a plan, and they've done an amazing job. So, John, I, at my uh, lunch hour today, I um, knowing I was going to be talking to you, I, I, I actually went ahead and got a bike ride in just I was a little afraid you'd ask. So I wanted to make sure I had ridden recently. <laughs> yeah, good, good for you. <laughs> so with the warm weather uh, hitting the, most of the states, what's, uh, what's going on with bicycling these days? Can you fill us in on some of the trends? Hey, and I think now's a great time to go out and ride a bike. And I always think that you know, over the next 25 years, cycling will become a, a bigger part of life in America and for a couple of different reasons. I think as a country, we have environmental issues, not just as a country, but as a globe. And the one decision that people make that has a huge impact on the environment is just what they use for transportation. And if you take a look, it's there's a statistic that 40% of car trips are less than two miles. Mm. And I think it's a really good opportunity for, you know, people to take a look at a bike is a, is a great way to get around. And I think, you know, one thing we already talked about was health, but, uh, you know, Americans need to get out and exercise and there's no better way to exercise than riding a bike. I mean, I've been lucky enough to be able to ride a bike my whole life. And, uh, the great pleasure of riding a bike is hard to beat. And, uh, you know, the last thing is, especially in cities, you know, there's more and more great bike infrastructure. And every time you're out there riding a bike and not driving a car, it alleviates congestion in, a, in some of our cities. And uh, those are three big things, health, the environment, and congestion. And the bike is a simple solution to all three. I remember hearing, um, I, I got into triathlons in, in 2009. Uh, at the time, I was at least 50 pounds overweight. And um, I had, uh, I was ski snowboarding. And because, due in large part because I was overweight, I fell, because uh, I was top heavy, I guess, and broke an ankle. And um, yeah. Long story short is in the recovery stage there, I, I switched to bicycling as my means of exercise because I was worried about putting on even more weight. And that sort of prompted me to then um, get interested in, in triathlons because I'd always been a swimmer, but I hadn't didn't think I could do the, the riding and, and running that goes along with it. And uh, somewhere in there, I heard some statistics that that uh, 5Ks and marathons and triathlons and basically endurance events like that were uh, the fastest growing sport, at least among 30-somethings, 40-somethings, and 50-somethings. And I, I wondered if, if cycling has, if that's true, in the in, specifically in cycling, if that's still an upticking trend. You know, cycling is, especially those events have grown a lot over the past 20 years, and I'd say right now it's kind of plateaued. But, you know, I think that that could grow again. And I, I think the point that you made, just based on your personal experiences, is one thing that is very uh, frustrating about our healthcare system in America. And that is that all the talk about health in America is about 
what somebody can get for free is can the program provide free drugs or free coverage or what's the cost of this and what are we doing over here and is somebody covered with this all good questions but none of the conversation is how can we create healthier americans because i'll tell you if you're if you're supposed to weigh 200 and instead you weigh 270 the list of health complications you're going to have over your lifetime is massive. Huge. And your enjoyment in life, you give me a guy who's 270 who's supposed to be 200 and you give me somebody who's 200, their enjoyment in life is significantly higher. Not 10% or 20%. I'm talking 3x, 4x, the guy at 200 than the guy at 270. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. Based on and so, and so how as a country, you know, can we put a little more focus on prevention and how we create healthy Americans instead of just always talking about how we can take care of all the unhealthy people we have? And and I've seen this happen at Trek is when you do that, look at what this country did in the sixties with smoking. Right there on the package says, you know, according to the Surgeon General, smoking is hazardous to your health. How many people smoke today? It's a great success story. And if we put that same focus and effort on creating healthy Americans, imagine what kind of an impact that could have over the next 40 years. And all that stuff could be done. Well, the book, again, is 12 Simple Solutions to Save America. We've been talking with John Burke. John, where can people find out more about you and get their hands on your books? Oh, I think um, you can get your hands on the book by going to uh, Amazon. You can get your hands on the book by going to uh, iTunes. It's available, or iBooks, both those places. And what? um, I think you're active on Twitter, right? What's your Twitter handle? That's a good question. I think it's JB Trek 08. At JB Trek 08. And we'll put, a, we'll put a link to that in our show notes. Are you also on, uh, on LinkedIn or any other f- social media? No. Just Twitter every once in a while. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the website for your book as well is um, 12simplesolutions.com. And the website for Trek is trekbikes.com. There you go. John Burke, it's been great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Engagers, that wraps up this episode. We'll provide the information and links that John mentioned on our show notes for this episode. You can find those at engagingleader.com. Workforce Health Engagement is a production of Asmodale Communications, a consulting firm that specializes in workforce communications, helping mid-size and large employers attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results in several areas, not only health engagement, but also talent management, benefits and compensation, business transformation, and more. Find us at asmondalecommunications.com. If you enjoy this series, be sure to check out the leadership podcast, Engaging Leader, where my guests and I share ways to communicate and engage and lead with greater impact. You can find both Workforce Health Engagement and Engaging Leader podcasts in iTunes, Stitcher, and on our website at engagingleader.com. Our thanks to Monica Harrison, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, Cecily Leahy, our web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. 
Until next time, remember, over the long term, a program of the day won't help you boost employee health, productivity, and your bottom line. For sustainable success, you need an integrated approach to workforce health engagement.